0: Welcome to Summit Podcasts. This is Michael Bond. It's been a while since we've brought you new content, but today we're picking up with a discussion on week one of our Roman series. You can find the full sermon of week one at summitpodcasts.church, so I encourage you to go back and listen if you missed it. Today I'm speaking with Pastor Todd Stanley. Todd is the associate pastor at Summit. In this episode, we discuss God's promises, the difference between general and special revelation, and how to feel about the durability of your salvation. This was a deep conversation, which was at times very moving. I learned a lot, and I think it complements the sermon very well. I know you'll benefit from this as much as I did, so without further delay, I bring you Pastor Todd Stanley. I am here with Pastor Todd Stanley. Hey, everybody. All right. So we are picking up with our study of Romans. This is we're discussing content from the sermons. This is going to be Romans week one. And so we'll just jump in with the first clip. This is going to be about God's promises. So let's listen to Pastor Mel.
1: God's righteousness comes out of his holiness because God is holy. It makes him righteous. And because he is righteous, it means he always does what is right or good. It means he has no choice but to do what is right. It's not just a choice he makes, it is who he is. Because he is righteous, what he does is right. What he does is good. So he cannot, by definition, he cannot be wrong. (laughs) Kind of like your wife. (laughs) I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I'm in so much trouble. It's Mother's Day. God. I can be wrong as I just was. (laughs) But God cannot be wrong. He can't be. It's outside of his nature to be wrong or to be bad. He can't. Because of that, he's righteous. He's faithful to do what he said he'll do. Now, he is not like you and I. You and I will will say things, we will say, yeah, I'll do that. And somebody will say, you promise? Yeah, I promise. What they're saying is, I'm not positive, I trust what you're saying. I need you to qualify it. I promise. When you're younger, you probably don't do this anymore, hopefully. But you, when you're younger, you'd say, I swear, and you'd go, Pinky swear? I pinky swear. I can't imagine some of you grown men going, Pinky swear at your job? You pinky swear? I'm gonna get that job done. You promise? Pinky promise? God doesn't have to do that, by the way. Do you know why God doesn't have to do that? Because he's righteous. By virtue of him saying it, it is a promise. He doesn't have to promise because he said it and he's righteous. So when he says something and we go, are you sure? Do you promise? That's us, that's not God. See, if you do a Google search of God's promises, it's gonna come up with all kinds of promises and some of them are specific promises or covenants that he made. Um, but Everything God says is a promise. It's a de facto promise by virtue of him being righteous. That's who he is. So this is our working definition that God is righteous. He always does what is right or good. And he's faithful to keep his promise.
0: I think accepting this, that this is accepting this idea is one of the most fundamental and most necessary prerequisites for being able to understand the Christian faith. So what I mean is, if you approach the Bible with a skeptical mind, I feel like you're immediately going to just find something that you don't understand and you're going to walk away from it. And you're going to think it, it was a problem with the scriptures. But if you were to approach the Bible with humility or, or accepting a priori that God's word is true, then what ends up happening is you, you encounter something that you might seem wrong to you and you, you default to, okay, I just don't understand this yet. I need to expand my knowledge of God. And then what happens is you proceed on faith in that way. And then you discover, then you discover that, oh, it, it was my perception. It was the way that I'm seeing this particular idea. And th- I think that process reinforces itself because once you see an issue or what you thought was an issue, and then you find out it was just that you didn't understand it, then you have that in your tool belt going forward and it's like, okay, well I can continue to look at it that way. And I think that that's from scripture perspective, approaching scripture that way, we also need to approach life that way. But I think it's, look, it can be hard to do it with the Bible, but I think it can be even more difficult to do it with life. And so maybe what do you think are the most common phases of life, which result in people questioning God's word? result in questioning the faithfulness of God or, or whether or not what God said was true and w- what are some small steps that a person might take in the midst of these situations to stabilize themselves until their mindset kind of recalibrates
2: yeah oh man there's a whole lot there as far as circumstances in life that that cause us to question that reality I, I think it's I mean it's tragedy it's suffering it's those things we tend to um, think God's being really kind to us when things are going well. Now, that that there's a there's a way in which that is true, right? If if those things are causing me then, like my experience of what we might describe at least as blessing, so my experience of the good things of life. So if um having children Causes me then to reflect on the goodness of God. Uh, if being a father causes me to reflect on the nature of God as father, then then those good things become for me blessings, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just as possible for a good thing uh, to take my eyes off of God. And so in that way, even though I might go, might think, oh well, God, you've been so good to me, if if that good thing then becomes for me an idol, well, is it really right. a good thing? By converse, if suffering causes me to to run to God, if it, you know, if the experience of that suffering reveals for me and in me um, my need for God, or I feel, you know, people often describe uh, being, you know, when they're really sick or are facing the death of a loved one uh, experiencing the peace and presence of God in a way that they never had before. And so in that way, then, suffering actually becomes for us a blessing. And so I think part of the problem—and you said this uh, as you began—that like this is a fundamental aspect of a Christian worldview, and that is exactly why. Because if we see God as good— understand God as good, believe that God is who has revealed himself to be in the scriptures, then that is a a faith and a theology that will sustain us in good times and in bad times. Because when things are going well, we understand that those blessings come from God, not from our own strength, and that they are not things to be worshipped in and of themselves, that they are things that should then turn our thoughts and our Worship toward God. By the same token, in difficult times, when we hold fast to the truth that God is good, there's an opportunity then for us to suffer well, to suffer in ways that glorify God, to experience the presence and peace of God in ways that we do not and probably cannot in when things are going smoothly and easily. And so it becomes a sustaining faith for us. Um, The thing that you talked about as far as being difficult to live life in that way, especially for people who are not followers of Jesus, who aren't believers, uh, yeah, it's really tough. And I mean, it's hard enough even for believers, right? When things are going difficult, it's not always easy for us to go, you know, Lord, thank you for this opportunity to suffer well, right, right? right. Lord, uh, you know. And so, uh, I was trying to think. There were a couple of things that you talked about where you know you said you know. You can live this way, and then maybe later you discover, oh well, I was I was wrong about my assumption. Right, and I, and I think there's some some validity to that, but I also think we have to remember that the work of the Holy Spirit is to convince us, to convict us of our sin, to convince us of our need for a Savior, to draw us to Jesus. And so, for people who don't know Christ, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this like it's it's foolishness to them. And so we have to we we can't divorce it all from the work of the Holy Spirit and say, mm-hmm. "You know what we we don't understand our our vision is darkened, our understanding is darkened until the Holy Spirit draws us and reveals to us you know the the goodness of God.
0: yeah, and when you think about suffering well, I think that people sometimes hear that and they think okay well i'm I'm just doing why am I doing that? Why am I suffering well?" And it's actually useful to think." About why you should suffer well, and I think one of the reasons is because the people around you, uh, you become a stabilizing force for them. Yeah, I mean, you can your actions sometimes in the midst of suffering, especially when it's like collective suffering, like maybe your whole family is going through something. Your actions can determine the outcome, not just for yourself, but for the people you love, the people around you, and you can actively play a part in making mm-hmm. things a whole lot better than they could be or yeah. a whole lot worse than they could be. And I think about this, like sometimes I've told people, you know, I, I tell the the United group this sometimes, like whenever it's getting late on a Tuesday night and there's nothing open like for food or whatever to go after. And I, I say, aren't you just thankful for sheets? Like sheets is always there. It's always open. <laughs> it's always ready to go. It's always ready to, to, to help and to serve you and all this. And I was like, you just need to be the sheets for the people in your life. You know, you just need to be. And... I think there's really something to that because uh, man to be whenever I'm at funerals this is where it really becomes tangible to me like all the stuff that we do through the week all the stuff we do on the weekends all the worship all all that everything that we do as Christians when I'm at funerals for some reason it, it's a reminder to me of why we're doing it yeah and it's like there's something punctual about that there's something final that feels like man, this is so important. Yeah, Like this is of ultimate importance. And it just kind of reminds me of that. And that happens to me pretty regularly whenever I either attend or help out with a funeral. And it's like, it's it's weird how easy it is to forget about that in the day to day. Well, you know, that's importance.
2: what I mean. Proverbs actually says it's better for us to attend funerals than parties because we should consider our mortality. Right. And so, The scripture even holds that out to us, right? That there there is value in these things, and we can often miss it because we are, uh, we tend to at least pursue pleasure rather than to look for meaning and understanding in suffering. But man, I would say, look, suffering is common to all people, and of course, we all experience it at to varying degrees. but it is common to all of us. And if we simply see it as meaningless, number one, we are denying the fact that the Word of God says that He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, right? We deny the truth of that when we see suffering as meaningless. or you know. And then secondly, uh, we, we miss the opportunity to To gain an understanding that can then add value to the lives of the of the people around us, mm-hmm. uh, and help others to endure suffering, and not just to endure it, but to be able to rise above it. I mean, that's the that's the point of this, right? God uh, says in His Word that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So, so God's intent for us is to be free. Uh, and not free from the experience of pain, but free to rise above that, Mm -hmm. free to overcome the world, even as Christ overcame the world. And Jesus conquering and overcoming of the world did not um, separate him from or insulate him from or protect him from suffering, right? Mm. In fact, his, his overcoming the world went through the path of suffering, mm-hmm. the, the way it led through suffering, but it led to the ultimate victory over sin and death and hell and the grave. And so if that's the model of Christ for us, then as followers of Jesus, we should be prepared that that be the way for us as well, yeah. that the way to overcoming leads through suffering and that there's, there's some blessing and there's some benefit there.
0: Yeah, and the pathway to this idea seems evident even even if you're a non-believer. You just look nobody disputes the reality of pain. Like it's just there. Right. And the suffering's just there. And so because of that brute fact about reality, it seems to me to be the case that better to be an overcomer of suffering than to be absent of it altogether because you can't be absent of it. It's just, yeah. it's not going to happen. And so you're, it's actually more useful to be equipped to overcome it and to transcend it. And that's the Christian model. And man, that's just, that's, it's, it's, you think about suffering you think about tragedy and you think about how many people have been turned away from God because of it, but it's also not obvious to me how many people who've been brought to God because of it because of the way that they've watched other people walk through it. And because of the things they've been able to, you know, that they've discovered deep inside themselves in the midst of those things. That's, that's so cool. Um, I'm trying to think of like a, an analog. So we talked a little bit about life and the blessings of life, possibly turning into idolatry. I'm trying to think of an analog when it comes to approaching scripture. And what I'm thinking of is something like a systematic theology. And there's probably reformed people who aren't going to like me for this, but, um, I think that the the hubris that comes from the blessings of thinking okay well either I earned this myself or this is on my own power or actually I'm going to become enamored with my blessings all of those things seem to be to me to be dangers that could be associated with a systematic theology. Because like you could have the hubris to think that there's no more mystery in God. We've figured it out. We have everything we need. We understand it. Or we could become so enamored with our doctrines that we hold closer to those than we do to the scriptures, if that makes sense. Am I off base by by suggesting that?
2: No, I don't think so. Uh, I think... I think what, what that has in common with, say, looking at material blessing and making an idol out of that and making an idol out of, out of our theology, we can do either one. Uh, I think what those things have in common is that the focus becomes internal, right? How is this benefiting me? How am I, you know, uh, and it it terminates with us rather than the focus being external, both in terms of our worship, right? And so which means that worship should go to God, uh, whereas if if I'm worshiping the things that I possess or whether it be material or theological or whatever, then that's terminating with me. It's stopping here. It doesn't get where it's supposed to go. And then also in terms of the people around us, right? My material blessing uh, really isn't of much benefit if I'm not using it for the good of others. Mm-hmm. Um, my theology, no matter... How airtight I may think that it is is of no value if it cannot be used for the blessing of others. Um, and then the same is true with suffering. If you want to say how the how do these compare? The same is true with suffering. What happens in when suffering is that we if we become very inwardly focused and we forget about the opportunity that that is for us to. Um, reveal Christ to other people through that. The Apostle Paul talks about this, right? The honor that it was for him to suffer for Christ, so that he might reveal Christ to others, mm-hmm. so that he might, you know, and even like uh, one of the things that I think about is uh, when he and Silas were in prison and they began to sing and to praise God at the midnight hour, and the walls were shaken and the chain, their chains fell off, and you know, God, there's this great thing that happens. Well. They didn't run away in that moment. Mm-hmm. They stayed put, mm-hmm. and then they ministered to the jailer, and he yeah. and his whole family came to Christ. You know, and so for us, we would go, "Oh well, that that terminates on me." God, God broke these walls down so I could get out yeah, of here, yeah, yeah. right? But Paul goes, "No, no, no. This is an opportunity." Yeah, that's man. And, and we miss the opportunity. We because we're so inwardly focused, and I'm as guilty as anybody, you know. And the thing is, it's like no. God put me in this moment, whether whether it's in a moment where things are smooth and, and blessing just seems to be being poured out, or whether it's a moment where I'm walking through difficulty and suffering, it's an opportunity that God has placed before me, and, and am I going to be looking for it, or am I going to be blind to it?
0: Yeah, so like, how do we when we're in the midst of a really challenging thing and we feel self dominated because it's like you try to go to sleep at night and all you can do is, is you just, you're buried in your own thoughts and the pain and everything else. And so it's all all that self is just covering up. It's blinding you essentially the best thing I've been able to do. And I, so this is why I'm interested in like the practical tips here. The best thing I've been able to do is to get extra rational in those moments and to just kind of like take stock of the situation and be like, okay, pretend it's somebody else's life. Like in this, this was their set of problems. Yeah, How would I advise them to work their way out or how how would I advise them to deal with the problems that they're dealing with? Because sometimes I think that. People are able to give advice, and they're able to give suggestions, and they're able to figure out puzzles in other people's lives. Whereas, if that puzzle was on their own life, the emotions and the yeah. that stuff kind of keeps them from being able to sort it out. And I don't know if that's the right thing to do. It feels very cold to to do it that way. But um, I don't know if you have any tips far as far as like how to get out of your own way and how to how to minimize the self whenever somebody's going through a lot of pain like that
2: yeah um man i don't i don't know if I have a lot of tips um I, i've not been in that kind of place personally right so i've not and, and so it's it's really hard to say i have seen other people who i thought man they they really are they they've suffer well you know and I, n- <laughs> that seems like such an odd term but anyway like i remember uh, there's a there's a man in our church Rick uh who uh, passed away uh, a couple it's been man it has been two years ago almost now um, but he had had cancer but the entire time that he was going through treatments and you know the treatments seemed to be less and less effective you know and all those kind of things and there was an inevitability that you know barring a miracle barring God you know that this would be the, the path that led him to death's door. And, and that's exactly what happened. But through that entire time, man, I watched him as he would say, you know, what a blessing it was for him to be able to sit down next to the other people who were receiving treatment and talk to them about Christ and talk to them about the hope that he had and talk to them about how that if the Lord saw fit to heal him, that 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 was, you know, he would give great bless that he would give honor to God, that he would praise the Lord for that, and that would be a great testimony. But that if he were to pass, that he would be in God's presence. He said it's a win-win situation for mm-hmm. me, and so I, yeah. you know, and so you watch people do those things, and you go, man, you know, th- that's Lord, give me the grace to do that. Give yeah. me the grace to live in that way. Give me the grace to face because here's the thing, we're all going to die
0: Mm -hmm.
2: right my my path toward death today may not feel particularly difficult i may not be having you know pain or sickness or disease that i'm dealing with but i am dying Mm -hmm. right uh how am i going to deal with that today right How do I see that opportunity? You know, what do I do with the moments that I have? You see, what suffering does for us oftentimes is bring into sharp focus and bring into clarity the fact that we only have a limited amount of time. Yeah, yeah. What happens in blessing or in ease is that we forget that Mm -hmm. our time is limited, and so we become wasteful and yeah. suffering suffering brings that into stark
0: contrast yeah it has a way of reshuffling the priorities and the thing too is like you know when you go through something like we were talking about rick like the blessing of the way he walked through that seems to be the case like i mean we're talking about it right now so the blessing lives on like yeah. the inspiration of it yeah. lives on and so the you know what you do now the choices that you make those aren't just going to impact you now or today or next week, but they might even impact other people past your death and yeah. long into the future. And then it, it might even inspire somebody to walk through their own suffering in a different way. And so, I mean, yeah, that's all that stuff's really good. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you remember, uh, man, it's probably been, a, I can't, I don't know
2: how many years ago now, but it was called the last lecture. Do you remember that at all? I don't know. So there was a college professor uh, he was a father uh, to, I, I don't remember how many, but he had, he was a father of boys uh, and he had terminal illness and was getting very close to, to death and he knew that his time was coming. And so he gave what he called the final lecture in one of his classes at school Uh, And it was, it was videoed. You can find the video on YouTube. And it was basically the things that he wanted to say to his sons. Huh. And, you know, and so, man, like I look at those kinds of things and I go, what a tremendous opportunity we have when we have an understanding that our time is limited. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we can leave something behind that benefits other people. It may not be a video on YouTube, right? It may literally be sitting down and having a conversation face-to-face with someone that they carry, and then that ripples and impacts. Oh, yeah. but The The thing is, though, we have those opportunities every day. Yeah. One of the things, man, that I've been feeling like that God's really impressed on me lately, and I've shared this in a couple different places, but just that every moment is pregnant with divine potential Mm -hmm. and i miss it all the time yeah oh yeah because i am preoccupied with the things that i feel like must get done or the checklist for the day or netflix what you know whatever right we miss the the We miss the divine opportunities as there. we miss the voice of God speaking because we are in such a hurry to get to the next thing.
0: Yeah. It's hard to say where the upper limit of that kind of thing is if we took advantage of each moment in that way. And you know, when someone's going through like a terminal illness or man that they have a currency that no one else has in some sense, because if a, a, a man or a woman's words, when they know that they're dying, carry a, a different weight, especially when the people around them know that they knew they were dying. Mm-hmm. It gives them a, 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 special moment, a special kind of currency that you don't really have as much outside of that. And man, so that really kind of highlights the opportunity of it all. Um, okay. So this next clip is going to be about general revelation. Let's listen to
1: Pastor Mel. Romans chapter one. Uh, Paul begins his introduction, he greets, he connects with, he's doing his salutations. And then when we get to verse 18, he gets right into this idea into the meat of it. And he's addressing the church, he's addressing the the church in general, but in hindsight, we see that he's talking more to um, the Gentile believers. And this is where we'll start in Romans 1:18 today. It says, but God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. If I didn't tell you this wasn't a Mother's Day message, that would have told you right there, right? <laughs> they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, eternal power, his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing him. So what this is saying is, there is evidence for God in creation. So we should be able to look at the night sky and there should be something in us that says, there's more to this life than breathing in and out until I stop breathing in and out. If I look at creation, it should give me a clue that there is a creator.
0: Okay, so first for people who are maybe new to the faith, let's just talk about the difference between general revelation and special revelation. Okay. Well,
2: so general revelation is exactly what Paul is describing in Romans in the passage that Pastor Mel just read, right? Is that uh, that there is evidence all around us for God. Uh, and so, when, when you look at the at human history, right? So, um, there we we have hardwired in us a need to understand why things are. That is unique to humanity, by the way. Mm. Um, in, in evolutionary theory, um, one of the things they talk about is the the evolutionary mandate, right? What they mean by that is that every characteristic of a species, and of course, this all hinges on whether or not you buy into evolution, and we, we could discuss that, you know, ad infinitum. It's a whole other issue. But here's the point uh, that every characteristic that a species exhibits evolved by necessity, right? So, um, monkeys giving a warning yelp when there's a predator near that characteristic evolved for the Mm -hmm. preservation of the species their ability to climb trees right was so that they might escape predators on the ground they're you know those kinds of things every and and so that and that goes across the gamut of of all you know the animal kingdom Mm -hmm. you know that all of those every characteristic Evolved over uh, over time for the preservation of the species, and by necessity, that tends to hold up across all species except people, right? Because when you talk about things that must necessarily be communicated, all of the things to perpetuate a species can can be communicated without complex language. Mm-hmm. I can communicate that I'm happy without words. I can communicate that I'm angry without words. I can communicate that I'm hungry without words. There are ways to communicate my sexual need without words. There are ways, you know, et cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera, Right. Humanity alone in all of creation, though, exhibits complex language. Mm-hmm. Right? We ask the questions yeah 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 <laughs> right and so uh to me as a follower of jesus i look at that and i go oh well yeah we're created in the image of god
0: mm-hmm. and yeah. so
2: that makes sense we would seek for greater meaning we ask questions about the meaning of life we ask questions about why things are happening the way that they are yeah. we ask well, we assign meaning to things all of that is because hardwired in us is the pursuit of God. We were created yeah. for relationship with God, which necessitates that we ask those questions. Yeah. This is
0: a powerful point that C.S. Lewis makes, and I think it was mere Christianity. He talks about how you know we need the sun and there is the sun. We need food and uh-huh. there is food. Yeah. All of this. And then he goes on to say we, we need meaning, and why would they, why would we need yeah. meaning if there was no meaning? And yeah. this kind of uh, this idea of how we are tailored to relate to god that is like his imprint of himself on us yeah. and that's how we're able to see the distinction and it's how we're able to see like that we are customized for a reality yeah and we see the reality on ourselves and we see it on the creation you know with with the, the awe of mountains and this and I, when I think about general revelation sometimes i think about like the beauty of creation although there also is a lot of fallen aspects of creation. Sure. I think it can get a little bit muddy when you're really digging into it. Like Dawkins will try to use the creation to argue against God and against intelligent design and all this. But I think that that there's a difference between general revelation and like assuming out of the gate, assuming that all creation is a perfect representation of God, even though creation has fallen so therefore it's not as christians we would say that there's a fallen aspect to it yeah and someone maybe like dawkins who's not a christian would approach it from the perspective of okay the creation or the general revelation he's assuming that it's a perfect representation of god and therefore he's imposing the fallen nature of it right. onto god or onto the lack thereof um and so okay so general revelation we get we get this idea that there is we get deity out of that. We get the ability to understand that we can, com- that we have a higher purpose or a higher meaning, or we at least crave that. And therefore maybe it's there. So it points us to God. Yeah. Um, but it's distinct from special revelation. Why?
2: Well, because special revelation would be uh, God revealing himself himself, specifically right that uh and and so we we believe that this happened has been happening progressively <laughs> over time right from the through the human history uh the you know and so uh finding its culmination in the person and work of jesus uh but so this would be god revealing himself uniquely to people uh and so um yeah, that would be the difference. you mm-hmm. know. So general revelation would be that thing that is in all of us that goes, there must be more. Mm-hmm, right. And then we look around us and go, oh, well, there's evidence, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, specific revelation um, would be just that. It would be God appearing to Moses in the wilderness in the form of the burning bush and saying, you know, I am sending you. Uh, it would be you know, when he says, who do I tell them sent me? And he says, tell them I am, right, Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And so it would be those kinds of things where God is revealing himself uh, in in his uniqueness and in, in his specificity to people over, you know, throughout human history.
0: Yeah, I was, um, as I was going through training, I was taught that that special revelation, that the gospel was reserved for special revelation and that salvation was not possible through general revelation. Now I'm not sure how I feel about that. Honestly, when I, when I really think it through, um, I get what I get that special revelation needs to be the primary means by which we follow Jesus. Yeah. Um, that that and that following Jesus is the prerequisite for salvation. But Then you have the problem of the unevangelized, like, you know, someone who lives their entire life on a, on a island when they, they never encounter special revelation, never encounter the gospel, um, assuming that, well, let's back up. I may have made an assumption there, assuming that special revelation is reserved to the scriptures, which I think that also is, uh, maybe an open question. Um, is it possible to arrive at an understanding of Jesus through general revelation?
2: Uh, I don't think so, um, because in order for that to happen, you would have to have some form of special revelation, at least in my understanding, God, God would have to come and like Paul on the road to Damascus, right? And you know, a light from heaven and God speaks and he says, who are you? I am Jesus who you persecute, right? That's special revelation. Yeah, Yeah, Um, and I don't know that you could arrive at that kind of understanding of Christ, uh, outside of special revelation yeah now in regard to people who've never heard you know that whole kind of desert island theory tropical island theory whatever where they you know um scripture doesn't address that and so in those instances for me i just i I default to the goodness of god God, scripture doesn't address this i don't have an answer for it uh but i know that you're good and so i trust those people and their their eternities to your goodness. Yeah. And that's the the most that I can do in that circumstance. Um, Going back to your point about is special revelation uh, confined to Scripture, uh, I would say for those of us who are... well, who uh, continuation is right? which means that we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are continued to be in operation, that the charismatic gifts should be in operation uh, among God's people. No, special revelation is not confined to Scripture what I would say is that special revelation must and always agrees with scripture. Right. Yeah. Right. And so there may be word of wisdom, word of knowledge, a word of prophecy. There may be, you know, those things that are going and, and, you know, operating among the community of faith, uh, but they must always, always, always agree with and come in alignment with scripture and and be, you know, and so uh, I would say that's, my understanding of that.
0: That's my belief in that. Yeah. Arena. Yeah. That's good. So as a pastor, people probably have a lot of access to you, to, to your relationship with God through worship, through your teaching of the scriptures, through prayer, through that, those elements of your life. And so I'm wondering, like when you are in the creation say, cause I don't think general revelation stops, at special revelation. Like we don't just graduate into special revelation and then we no longer, uh, connect with God in the creation. So I want to know, like in your own life, maybe when you're outdoors or like, where do you feel most connected to God in that general sort of way? That's maybe outside of the practices of worship, the practices of, of teaching and prayer and that sort of thing. Where do you find yourself feeling, feeling his presence most palpably?
2: Uh, I mean, I definitely feel most, Connect, I don't know if connected is the word, but I definitely experience the presence of God outside. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there's something special to me about uh, sitting next to a body of water, especially moving water. Yeah, yeah. Uh, feeling the breeze, uh, watching the, the leaves rustle in the trees, and you know, there that those are those are sacred places for me. Those are sacred moments for me. Um, and there are times, you know, that uh, that the, well, I would say that general revelation and and specific revelation, like they they inform one another. Yeah, oh, right. Man, that's good. And so, uh, it's my understanding and my experience of who Christ is that then when I go into nature uh, and I experience something new in nature for the for the first time, or a, you know that, or or even it's not new. I, I give you an example. I remember one day in particular that I was uh, I was serving at a church that was about a half an hour from my from my house. It took me it was, so I had a commute every morning and every evening. And uh, there was one particular morning, and I would leave the house usually before daylight, especially in uh, fall and winter months. Um, I would leave the my house before the sun was up, and and. I would watch the sunrise on my way into the office uh, and my commute was actually through quite a bit of farmland. So there were fields and there were, you know, and so uh, there wasn't really anything to obstruct my view. It wasn't, you know, and, you know, and so, but I remember one particular morning uh, I was driving to the office, driving to the church and the sun sunrise was absolutely incredible. Just beautiful. Yeah. You know, like like, you know, just like someone had painted it. Yeah, and and that was the thought that was in my mind at that moment. This looks like someone could have painted it. You yeah, know? yeah. And in that moment, I felt the I felt the Lord speak to me and say, "I did that for you today."
0: Yeah,
2: and I'm getting emotional about it now, right? Um. And so there is, there's that general revelation of you see something like that, and you ca- and you think that can't be accidental. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, there must be something, and it was my specific revelation, my special revelation, right of my my relationship with Christ. That then informed that general revelation. Yeah. and then deep and then beyond that, right, is the understanding of God's deep love for us and understanding of God as Father, wanting to give good gifts to his children. all of that's at at play in that moment, yeah. leading, you know, to, to me to go, you know, to to hear the voice of God say, "I did that for you today." And then knowing that that was, you know, as the scripture says, God just, he lavishes his love on us. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so I think, though, they inform one another in that way. And that that as we walk with God, that those experiences d- deepen and increase rather than become fewer.
0: Right. And I think that that's, man, that story is a testament to the importance of not neglecting, uh, you know, someone comes to God through general revelation and then special revelation is like, okay, I'm a Christian now. I'm a, you know, I spent all my time in church studying the Bible, doing all the things. Um, it, that, that story really speaks to the importance of making sure that you don't neglect the beauty of the creation and of connecting with God in that way, and how those two things—they never really disconnect—and yeah. they fuel each other, and they help. It's—it's it's restorative to the soul to be in those moments. Like I remember when COVID was first starting to happen, and no one was really sure how bad it was going to be, and all this, and um, people were really getting at each other's throats over it mm-hmm. for the first time. And I was walking through a park, and I was looking around, and I thought, it doesn't matter how crazy we get down here. It, like our craziness isn't even going to touch like the, the cycle of nature of, you know, the sun's still going to set. It's still going to rise. Yeah. No matter how much we get upset about this, no matter how much we demonize each other as a, as a, as a culture or as a population, we will come and go and it will not have changed. It will have kept going. And, and, Uh, it really showed me the sovereignty of God in that moment and how, even when it felt like everyone was out of control, the, the greater things, the, the more fundamental things were still completely under control. And it, it was, the control was never in question, uh, when it comes to those sorts of things. And so, man, that's super important. Okay. So speaking of control and preservation, let's listen to, um, clip number three here. This is going to be Mel talking about the durability of salvation.
1: I grew up, um, in a, in a Pentecostal home. Um, and the home, the, the church that I grew up in, um, I believed as a young man that, uh, my salvation was very flimsy. It was easy to lose. I, I uh, Now looking back, it was almost as if God wanted to keep me out of heaven and he was looking for reasons to keep me out of heaven. So like if I had a bad thought, it was like, oh gosh, God probably just erased my name out of the Lamb's book of life. Like God's like, yep, I knew it, you're out. <laughs> and then I'd pray a prayer of repentance and be like, okay, you're back in. No, you're out again. Like, that's how I felt. And maybe you didn't grow up in a a Pentecostal home, but maybe you grew up in a a Catholic house where there were mortal sins and you were constantly on edge because you felt maybe the same way, that God was trying to keep you out of heaven. And and I I understand now that 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 belief was faulty. It was, I had a false idea of who God is. And so that that caused me to think differently about who he was and what he would do, because God's grace is much, 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 much bigger than that. Our God is not looking for reasons to keep us out of heaven. He's trying to help us get to heaven. Um, he, is, he is not ready to hit the ejector seat any moment, right? Uh, he is fighting for us. So I used to believe that I could lose my salvation just on a whim. If I had a wrong thought or bad idea or whatever it is, that it was gone. Um, But that's not the case at all. But I will say, I do believe that we can forfeit our salvation. I do believe we can walk away from relationship with Jesus.
0: Okay. So whether or not we call this preservation of the saints in the Calvinist sense, I think that there's some utility in believing in the durability of salvation. So a good, the best illustration I could think of when it comes to this kind of thing is like, imagine you have to drive across country and you have two options for cars. You have an old car that has all sorts of issues. And then you have a new car, which is virtually guaranteed not to break down. If you take the car that's guaranteed not to break down, you're free to enjoy the ride. You're free to do all kinds of things and get things done and do whatever work you need to do. You don't have to focus on, or on being concerned about the breakdown of the car all the Uh time. And it seems to me that salvation works in a similar way. And so I don't know, like I said, I don't know if this is quite preservation of the saints, but I feel like sometimes Calvin gets a lot of flack for, you know, the, the tulip um, (laughs) from maybe people who aren't really thinking through what some of those points mean. And this particular one, when it comes to salvation, I mean, I know when I studied Wesley, that he struggled for a long time about not knowing whether or not his salvation was in place. Like he, yeah. he was very concerned about it. And so I think this is a walk that's pretty common for Christians. And you know, how, are we trying to strike a balance here between like a hardcore preservation of the saints or like a, well, kind of what Mel was describing in the clip, is there a balance? How do we strike that balance? What do we, what do we do when we think about durability of salvation?
2: Well, I think the the thing that that Pastor Mel is emphasizing, which I think is the the important thing, is that we do not have to live in fear in regard to our salvation, in regard to God's love for us, in regard to our being held securely by Him and in Him. Um, And so, you know, that's the thing there. In regard to you know, losing our salvation, if you want to say it in that way. I, I, I tend to think that the outcome is the same no matter which theological position you come from. And I, here's here's what I mean by that. So what would be described as a traditionally Arminian position, uh, and you guys can, if you're not familiar with these terms, you can... Um, so Jacob Arminius was, is a is a theologian, and then John Calvin was a theologian, and they tended to disagree on the nature of, you know, salvation in regard to whether or not you could you could lose salvation or not. All right, so uh, just for a little primer, <laughs> I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you come from that Arminian position. You know, you would say, "Well, yes, it's possible for someone to lose their salvation. It's possible for someone to be saved, to truly have an experience with Christ, and then walk away, uh, and be become uh, reprobate or become, you know, anyway, shipwrecked in the faith." Is the language that Paul uses, right? Mm-hmm. That would often Armenians would often refer to. Um, the Calvin position would be that once you are saved, if that you, know, you have always, you will always be saved. That you cannot lose your salvation. Now, let's say someone is a part of the church; they are, you know, partaking in the sacraments. They are participating in the life of the church. They seem to have a zeal and a zest for, uh, for God's word and for serving. And every outer thing that we could measure, right? Every observable measure. We would say that person is a Christian and then something happens mm-hmm. and they are not, you know, they're no longer following Jesus, right? For better, lack of a better way to put it, they are not practicing Christians anymore. They, they you know, the deconstructionism that we see around us now is a very mm-hmm. good example. There are plenty of people who have identified as Christians and now say, I no longer identify as a Christian. Mm-hmm. And don't get, you know so the the arminian position would be that those people genuinely had an experience with christ and have walked away mm-hmm. the calvinist position would be they were never saved to start with yeah yeah right uh, the outcome's the same right <laughs> it is the yeah. outcome is the same what because the outcome is this is a person who is in need of of restoration. This is a person who is in need of salvation. This is a person who is in need of Christ. And so in some ways I think all of those kind of arguments uh, the end result's the same. Yeah. So right. It, and so we can we can disagree about the nature of how that works, but let's talk about let's talk about what the result of it is. And the result of it is that we all need the gospel. Mm -hmm. right and so let's just keep preaching the gospel uh and and recognize that those of us who are in christ absolutely we are secure in him that our salvation is durable that it's not you know i am not subject to god's whim or to my failure today if if i were to you know uh lose my cool or if i were to you know commit some sin today that that my salvation doesn't dissipate in that moment that you know that i do have an advocate with the father who is christ jesus that that my sins have been uh paid for on the cross of jesus christ not only the sins i have committed but every sin i might ever commit that the work of that work that jesus did is enough for all of that Mm. and that it is faith alone in that work that saves me and so if if my performance did not save me to start with what makes me think my performance today is going to forfeit the benef- you know the benefit of that salvation.
0: Yeah, and maybe a way for people to look at this to the question might be what does this feel like then? What does it feel like to have the right perspective on this because if we think about Arminianism and we think about Calvinism, we think, okay, well, those are doctrinal positions. It's very much in my head. I'm very much intellectualizing it. So what does it feel like? And so one of the ways that I've tried to conceptualize this on the terms of feeling is if you think about your most loving relationship, the most loving relationship that you have and how unconcerned you are about that person betraying you on a day to day like you don't you know you're not sitting up at night thinking oh they're going to betray me they're going to betray me if you do it's probably not a very loving relationship right. but if you think about the best one you have uh-huh. and then imagine that only infinitely better and then you have God's loving relationship with you and so we shouldn't be concerned on a day to day about slipping up and losing our salvation we yeah. shouldn't be concerned about we shouldn't be concerned about God just arbitrarily changing his mind about us mm-hmm. um And I think that that's what it feels like to have the right perspective. Um, And then, you know, things obviously in the specificity of the day-to-day, things can get muddy sometimes. But, uh, yeah, I think that sometimes whenever we don't know in terms of what we think about, how to think about it properly, we can say, okay am I feeling the right way about God? And I'm not a very, I'm not like a feelings-y kind of guy. Like I really like to, if I can can articulate it, I try to articulate it. Sure. But some things, like the relationship you have with God and the love of God, it, it demands more of you than just articulation. And so...
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right in that the experience of... Love, right? The knowledge of being loved, the sense of being loved, is the security of our salvation, and that doesn't dissipate just because I mess up today, right? Uh, Like I said, think about your most loving relationship. I I've disappointed my wife, right? I've done things that that she was not happy with. I've done. I don't, in those moments, question her love for me, or whether or not our relationship will endure, because. You know, and so and, and as you said, like think of that on in on infinitely greater terms. Cause my wife is amazing, but she's not perfect, right? Mm-hmm. God is perfect in every way. Mm-hmm. Going back to what we we're talking about, you know, the the first point of this, that God is good, that he always does good, he is righteous. And so if he is good and he always does good, that means that in response to my sin, just as he's always done throughout history, right, he will make a covering. Yeah. And he's done that. Um, and then there was something else that I was thinking of. Oh, as you were talking, uh, I I was listening to, um, an episode of Where's the Faith, the Where's the Faith podcast recently, which is from the guys at Theosho, Nathan Finocchio. And, um, I can't remember who the guest was, but one of the things that they were talking about it was, uh, he said, he said, when I... Am aware of God's presence. I am not thinking about my belief. Hmm. Huh. Right. It's interesting. I'm unaware of belief when I am aware of the presence of God. Right. Because, like, if I'm sitting across the table from you,
0: for example,
2: I'm not thinking, "Does Michael exist?"
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's right. Right. I'm looking at you. Yeah.
2: Right? I don't. And so it is. It is only when we have taken our eyes off of Jesus, you know, that we are not experiencing the presence of God, that we go, is God really good? Does God really exist? Is my salvation secure? Is my, you know, those questions only come into the fore when we are not actively experiencing the presence of God. Because when we are in God's presence, we don't even, we're not even, we don't even thinking about belief. He just is.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, and so in, in some ways, to me, the remedy for all of these things is for us to intentionally place ourselves in in those places where we experience the presence of God, whether it be outdoors, uh, you know, it's in the community of faith, it's, whether it's, you know, listening and, and worshiping with music or, you know, man, like lean into those things and experience God's presence because that... Uh, perfect love casts out all fear. Yeah, there you go. And so when I am living in and experiencing
0: the perfect love of God by being in His presence, then all this other stuff dissipates. Man, that's so good. So this last piece here um, will be Mel telling us about the purpose of God's law because you might be thinking, okay, well, it's nice to, you know, I can sit in the presence of God, but I still still want to study my Bible. I still want to live in accordance with, with the, the teaching of, teachings of the Bible. So there's some specificity there. So how do I think about the Bible in terms to, in, in relation to myself, as well as my salvation? Let's hear what Pastor Mill has to say.
1: So the law illustrates to us how incapable we are of saving ourselves. And verse 21 says this, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the commandments or the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. But now, here's here's what was going on. Here's the status of our world. We are dominated by sin. The law cannot save us. But now God, he's made a way through Christ Jesus. And you remember why he's writing this. He's trying to unite a divided, broken church. And he says, here's what unites us. Here's what brings us together. We are all broken. We all need a savior. All of us, even those of you who think you're righteous, you're not as righteous as you think you are. We all need God and God has made a way. So no matter what our backgrounds are, no matter what divides us, what brings us together, what unites us is Christ Jesus. God has made a way. Verse 23 says, for all have sinned. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This, this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Why would he do that? I think we get a clue in this last verse. It says, God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Remember what righteousness is. God always does what is right or good, and he always keeps his promises.
0: Okay, so at the end of the day, I think we see here that salvation originates with God and is a product of his righteousness, not our own righteousness. And because of that, the the comfort and the security and the peace that we just described in the previous segment is all bound up in that idea that salvation is from his righteousness, not our own. Yeah. Now that seems easy to understand when you're in the presence of God, like we talked about, like when we're sitting in front of each other, it's like there's the questions aren't really there anymore. It's like, okay, we're just experiencing now when you, when you slip out of those moments, um, you know, cause there's lots of times where I'm sure people are like, they're standing in front of a waterfall or something. And they're just like, wow, like right now this feels right. Yeah. I wish I could just stay here. And then they end up slipping out of that and they go into something else. Um, when they're not in those sort of visceral experiential moments, it seems so easy to either, fall onto the one side of thinking okay this is a works-based faith and my justification is dependent on the progress of my sanctification so if i start sinning more than i was last week then maybe i'm not really justified and maybe i'm not saved yeah um and then on the other side of it it's like okay I'm just going to cling to this understanding that salvation is a product of God's righteousness. It's entirely dependent on him. Therefore I don't have to do anything. I'm, I'm, I can do whatever I want. And, um, you know, like it's antinomianism at the bottom, all the way down. It's just, it's, it's, uh, I never become spiritually mature because I'm not practicing, uh, to become a, a mature Christian. I'm not sort of living out the word. There's these two, ditches that are really easy to fall into whenever we're not experiencing the, the profound moments, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so what do we do about that? I guess, like, I don't know what the question is there, but when you're not in, when you're not palpably experiencing the presence of God, say you have a new believer, say you have somebody who just comes to the faith and you start to see that they're, it's evident that they're practicing a works-based faith. They're just like, they're constantly concerned. Maybe they start to become self-righteous. You see those sorts of things happening. How are you, how do you pull them away from that without, without also steering them into the sort of the the hardcore predestination? Like I'm just, I don't, I can just, I'm along for the ride kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Uh, Honestly, I think the answer is exactly what Paul is doing here, which is to remind both those you know under the law right the legalists and those who are not under the law that might tend to move toward license right and the libertarian you know uh the remedy is the gospel paul just keeps coming back to the gospel he keeps coming back to the good news that we are saved by faith right and by grace uh and that it's the work of christ alone uh, and so I think you keep coming back to the gospel and I think you keep coming back to the centrality of love and what that means for the gospel. Love does not um, remove responsibility. Mm-hmm. In fact, responsibility increases in love. I'll give you an I'll, I'll, I'll try to flesh this out a little bit all right so um, if I love my wife, I don't do less for her because I love her. Right. Mm, Right. Uh, If I love my wife, I don't go out and have affairs or pursue other women or, uh, do things that would be hurtful to her. Not because I'm obligated to do that. Right. Right. But because I love her. Mm -hmm. So the work is motivated by love. Yeah. By the same token, it is possible and man people do it all the time right uh they are miserable in their relationship with their spouse the love has long since gone yeah right uh but they remain and 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 i'm not saying they shouldn't by right. the way i'm not you know i god hates divorce and i, I believe that anyway well that's a whole other discussion mm-hmm. uh but what i'm saying is that it's possible for us to to do a lot of things uh that aren't motivated by love right and that is a miserable situation to be in yeah yeah right um and so uh so love is the thing that sets us free yeah i am not bound to keep the letter of the law uh because i'm afraid uh, so go back to the marriage example maybe you're a maybe you're a, a you know wife or a husband who um, you come into marriage thinking, man, I've got to do all of these things right. If I mess up, they're going to leave me. If I mess up, then my marriage is going to fall apart. If I, you know, we can't ever have an argument because, you know, and, and you know, there are lots of different reasons you could come into a relationship with that kind of thinking. You've been yeah. shaped by watching a toxic relationship with your own parents or seeing a divorce happen or whatever, like there's all kinds of reasons you right. could do that. But the the end result of that is I've got to be really good, or they won't love me. Yeah, yeah. Which 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 means that you're living in fear all the time. Mm-hmm. But if we are experiencing true love, right? If we are being loved well, mm-hmm. then we feel secure because when I get it wrong, that doesn't mean that they don't love me anymore.
0: Yeah, and then right, and like that's the place where you become. I would say that's the place where you have to walk through that place to get to Christian maturity, to get to spiritual maturity. It has to go through 100%. that 100% and like because every I,
2: I can't say every because a really loving marriage isn't an exception to this, which is why Paul call Paul says that the relationship between husband and wife uh, is reflective of the relationship between Christ and the church. Because when we love each other well in that kind of relationship, then there is grace to be found for one another. Then we help, you know, uh, in human relationship at least. We're not helping God to be better. But in human relationship, we help each other to grow. We help each other to become better. We help each other to you know, to to flourish and all of those things. Uh, and, and so that's why Paul says, I show you a mystery when he's talking about marriage. And he mm-hmm. says the mystery mm-hmm. is that this reflects Christ and the church. It's the only human relationship that really does that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, to that degree uh, because every other human uh, institution or or uh, system is merit-based mm-hmm. that's we, we just think in that way right we operate in that way um where if I'm really competent then I will advance if I'm really good then I will advance uh and and that and it's not that there's not something Valuable in that it's not evil in and of itself, but when that kind of thinking comes over into relationships that really should not be based on merit, right? Yeah, um, then then it can be troublesome, and especially in relationship to God, because we can't ever be good enough to earn. Oh yes, yeah, you know, uh, but love covers that. Yeah. And again, that doesn't mean there's not a requirement. There is a requirement in love. Uh, but, but it's not one motivated by fear.
0: Right. And that's really useful for people to know, like in marriages or really like maybe any human relationship, like if you want someone to meet a standard or to meet a requirement, um, make the relationship not contingent on them meeting that standard like commit to them just boom like i'm just committed i'm ch- I'm going to choose to love you i'm going to choose to stay no matter what and then that i think is setting the groundwork for the maximum possibility of the person actually and en- ending up the best version of themselves yeah. anyway because like if you just if you're just saying hey this is where you are this is where you need to be if you get here then we can then we'll be all right like then you're, you're flipping it upside down. Like you're, you're not, you're not setting them free to flourish in that, in that way. And so, yeah, I think with we, yeah, well, so when Jesus talked about the two great
2: commandments, right? He was asked, you know, what's the greatest commandment? The Pharisees asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, all of the law and all of the prophets hinge on these two things. And so, what he's saying is that when we love well, we will meet the requirements of the law. So, again, it's not that love doesn't have a requirement of us. It's that, that when love is the motivation for the way in which we live, that we will automatically fulfill the law. Because if, because love is my desire for you to flourish, for you to prosper. So, Will I steal from you if I love you? No, because I want your good. Right. Will I covet your your ox or your wife or your you know or you, no? Because I will rejoice right. in your blessing because I love you. Yeah. Will I will I murder if I love you? No, because I will see the the, the you know, the the image of God in you and, and the intrinsic value that you hold. And and there's and there's nothing about that kind of living that is constrictive or motivated by fear. Yeah.
0: yeah. So
2: if we if we can live in that way, then we won't have to be legalists because we won't have to think about the law. We think about what it means to love someone. Right. Yeah. And and by the same token we we, we don't fall into license or into, uh, you know,
0: lasciviousness because love doesn't allow for that. Right. Yeah. Love, you know, anyway. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good way to put a point on this, I think. And to, that's a great place to wrap this up. I, I think, uh, man, just, just, uh, love people and love them well. And, you know, don't get caught up and don't get caught up in meeting the standards and like you know, living out the law and that sort of thing, at least not for its own sake and, and be motivated by love. And if you be motivated by love and then you observe yourself acting on that motivation, you will see that you're, you're coming in under the will of God and you're coming in under his word. All right. Hey guys, thanks for listening to uh, Romans week one. We'll be coming back at you uh, sometime soon with week two. We're going to unpack it with, it's Kyle Hammond. And so I'll be excited to share that with you guys. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. What a powerful conversation! If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to it. You can also contact us with feedback at summitpodcast.church. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe so you can receive email notifications when new episodes are released. Remember to share this content with your friends, family, and on social media. Thank you so much for joining us in our study of Romans week one. We look forward to being back with you again as we break down week two in our next episode. God bless you, and have a wonderful day.